supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians, cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we look at a guide to the U.S. government's appeal in the Julian Assange extradition case. We're joined by independent journalist Kevin Gostola, managing editor at Shadowproof.com. Later in the program, we will be joined by creative radical journalist and filmmaker Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our conversation about the importance of the Julian Assange case for a truly free press. And we'll talk about WikiLeaks information that spawned several social justice movements. We'll also remind all of our listeners the importance of protecting whistleblowers and a truly free press. Coming up on the Project Censored Show, an hour about Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, the importance of press freedom, and what we can do to protect it. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In today's program, in this segment, we are honored to welcome back independent journalist Kevin Gostola. He's managing editor of Shadowproof.com. He also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Later on in the program, I'm sure he'll mention the dissenter. And I would strongly urge folks to sign up for his email list if you are interested in whistleblowing and particularly you want to know more about the case regarding Julian Assange and the extradition, Kevin Gostola published a great piece during the extradition hearings, a guide to the United States government's appeal in the Assange extradition case. That's at shadowproof.com. There are several other pieces that have been put up there since, but we're going to welcome Kevin Gostola back to the program today to give us an update on what's happening in the Assange case there's a media angle on what's happening in the Assange case and what we might expect next. Kevin Gostola, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Good to be back. Always good to have you on, Kevin, and you have been covering this case for a very long time. But in this case, can you remind our listeners what's actually going on with Julian Assange right now? He's been in the Belmarsh prison in London since 2019, and the United States has been pushing to extradite him to the United States to try him under the Espionage Act for someone that's not a U.S. citizen that dared to simply leak documents that proved the United States was committing various atrocities and war crimes. Kevin Gostolak, remind our listeners of where we are with the Assange case. And let me just first give a shout to my co-author, Mohammed Almazi, who is based in the United Kingdom and collaborated with me on coverage of this appeal hearing. Basically right now, Assange still faces these 18 charges, 17 of which are under the Espionage Act. To be clear, we have a decision that was denied by Judge Vanessa Baretzer back on January 4th. And what's happened is the U.S. government has come forward to try and salvage a case that it was losing by putting forward these diplomatic assurances, which we'll get into Later, But right now it's before the High Court of Justice in the United Kingdom. And meanwhile, Julian Assange has not been able to 
be granted bail. This judge, even though she recognized that it would be oppressive for mental health reasons to extradite him to the United States, still did a service to the U.S. government by saying she would keep him in jail during the appeal so that the U.S. government would have the best possible scenario. You know, that would mean Julian Assange isn't out of jail and able to speak and advocate for himself. So he's kept there. And and meanwhile, I think it's important to emphasize that globally, you cannot name a single press freedom organization or a human rights organization that hasn't been outspoken. If they are of any significance, they have opposed what the U.S. government is doing to Julian Assange. Of course, even at Project Censored, you know, I penned a piece in support of Assange and its great connection to press freedom. So, Kevin Gostola, can you please remind our listeners why the Assange case is important for press freedom? First off, this is the United States trying to impose a domestic law on someone who isn't even born here in the United States. It's extraordinary that they believe that Julian Assange, an Australian, should have to follow U.S. secrecy laws. To imagine another country doing this, uh, if they were to try to do this, we would see outrage. I mean, the U.S. would not stand for China or Russia trying to enforce its own secrecy laws over its information in order to protect their secrets. And if they were going to try and extradite or go after someone who was a journalist from other countries in order to protect their secrets in the same way the U.S. is doing to Julian Assange, you'd get daily pronouncements and daily remarks from State Department officials saying this was wrong. So that's what they're doing here. And they're, they're, they're creating this new normal, potentially, where powerful governments in regions throughout the world may feel like they can enforce their own domestic secrecy laws. Nobody who lives outside of the United States should have to follow these rules that say don't publish U.S. secrets. Now, it's highly debatable whether anyone here in the United States should be punished, and I don't really concede that. But I'm just saying, at least as an American, we do have to abide by how our government enforces its laws. But an Australian person, they only have to answer to Australian laws. That's pretty amazing because on the face of it, Kevin Gastola, it seems like that's just a commonsensical statement. There's nothing much controversial in what you just said. It should not be controversial. And yet the implications of what it means to do this, it expands itself out to other arenas. The idea that you could take a U.S. law and say we're going to impose it on people outside of the country. It doesn't stop with the Espionage Act. I recognize that there are other examples, which we will not talk about in this broadcast, but there are other examples where the U.S. Justice Department feels it can prosecute people who are beyond its borders and are not even U.S. citizens. Again, pretty remarkable, Kevin Gostola. So take us through a few of the incidents that led up to Assange, who was in the Ecuadorian embassy. Could you take us through a couple parts of that chapter of how eager the United States was to get at him in some way? We have since seen other revelations, now not hearsay, not conspiracy theory, but fact that several components of the U.S. government and high-ranking U.S. officials seriously talked about assassinating him, extricating him from the embassy. The CIA was involved in spying and data collection on him in the embassy. Can you remind our listeners of some of these abuses that were taking place before Assange even ended up in Belmarsh? 
Yeah, and this is a good point to bring in the media angle for what unfolded with the U.S. government's appeal hearing, because it was apparent that the report published by Yahoo News on these reported plans by the CIA to kidnap or kill Assange was a catalyst for media attention, for sparking interest among the press that had not existed previously. There were at least 50 or so journalists just on the video feed, the feed that permits people to have remote access to follow the proceedings if they are a journalist, if they're members of the press, not even including the people who may have been able to get seats at the high court in order to observe in person, report on the proceedings in person. But there were over 50. This is far more than the number of people that tuned into the extradition hearing in September 2020, when we had a month of of witnesses being called before the district court, uh, before she ruled. Uh, People like Dan Ellsberg took the stand, came in by video. Noam Chomsky submitted a statement. Patrick Coburn submitted a statement. So there were all kinds of people that were providing evidence that would help Julian Assange challenged his extradition. And then in this month-long hearing, we had way less journalists. And then now, because we're talking about the potential of, a, of, of the CIA assassinating somebody or considering assassinating this, this publisher, but also because Michael Isakoff mm-hmm. is on this story and he's a well-respected journalist in media, that has brought renewed interest I mean, I hesitate to say renewed, though, because there hasn't been this level of interest among the press up to this point. If you look at the timeline for this extradition case, at least not since he was arrested, expelled and then charged, have we seen the kind of interest that we have now from these people? And what we're talking about very quickly to summarize um, the revelations of this article is what we're talking about is the CIA deciding that they were going to use a term of legal significance and designate WikiLeaks as a hostile, a a non-state hostile intelligence agency, and that Mike Pompeo's obsession with seeking revenge against WikiLeaks for the publication of Vault 7 materials, which were documents on CIA cyber warfare capabilities, that he was going to go after this organization as a hostile entity and in doing so mount a disruption campaign with agents where they would try to violate people's privacy by entering their electronic devices And they would also try and pit people against each other in the organization by planting false information. And then they would also do things like target the embassy, mounting these these like total surveillance operations, which we know they recruited and were using the services of UC Global, the security company that was hired for the Ecuador embassy. So this was a big deal. And, And then obviously the more bombshell revelation beyond the disruption campaign was that they sketched out plans to kidnap and assassinate Julian Assange. I like the use of the renewed interest, right? It's usually been no interest unless it's attacking Assange. But these threats and attacks against Assange, these go back years. 
you can go back and look at CNN and other media outlets where they had people on from government agencies, the CIA. This is before Pompeo openly wanting to assassinate him, extradite him, get him hook or crook. And of course, after the 2016 election, this was ratcheted up. Now, I like that you mentioned Vault 7 because a lot of people that hear Assange, they'll go and talk about the completely debunked rape charges or other smear campaigns against him. And they won't bother to look beside him or past him for the actual information that he helped facilitate the release of to the global public. Vault 7 is a total bombshell for cyber warfare, election meddling. And interestingly, in Vault 7, what we learn is that the CIA has the capability to hack other elections and make it appear as though the meddling is coming from anywhere they choose. Curious that that information leaks around just in time for us to hear all about Russiagate and about how Russia is manipulating people's elections, the United States elections, mass election meddling. The United States has meddled in 80-some elections around the world since World War II, so the hypocrisy is extraordinary. But the reason that they're attacking Assange the person seems to be because he has been the conduit to get this information out, and they're doing everything they can to discredit him so people won't look at the information. This is a pretty classic bait-and-switch and ad hominem attack. On some level, it's not new, but the nature of the Yahoo News reporting was crucial in giving us from 30 plus sources who had been within the Trump administration and within the CIA, some specific details that outlined what was really going on during the the years since Donald Trump was elected. It's the first glimpse that we got into what officials were doing to escalate and renew their focus on bringing Assange to the United States for a trial. And when we're talking about the Vault 7 materials, this is the thing that most deeply offends the CIA, what really upsets Mike Pompeo. These are nearly 9,000 documents that come from the CIA Center for Cyber Intelligence. And when they are spilled onto the internet, WikiLeaks makes this big deal of, of saying how embarrassing it is that they were not able to protect their files. And then Mike Pompeo is ashamed. He can't even go face Donald Trump because the CIA was internally mocking the State Department and the Pentagon for not being able to protect their files when the Iraq war logs and the Afghanistan war logs that WikiLeaks published spilled on the internet. And when the U.S. embassy cables were published by WikiLeaks, they're making fun of the State Department. Now they're a victim of of WikiLeaks and they can't face it. He doesn't want to go before Donald Trump and be berated or made to answer for what just went wrong within the CIA. So what does he do? He decides that now they're going to seek revenge against Julian Assange. And, you know, one of those things you mentioned Russiagate, one of the things that the Vault 7 materials showed us is that they have a tool that whatever they're doing can give it fingerprints so it looks like it could be coming from, let's say, Russia or China and make people believe that a different power is involved in the hacking. So they can change what looks like the origin of the hack. How many stories have we had in the last two to four years where we've had claims of this shows Russia is hacking. I mean, it tells you that if you're a smart hacker, you're probably masking whatever you're doing as far as your activity behind Russia, just because it's such an easy thing to convince people that that's who is engaged in this activity. I'd like to remind listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff. 
We're speaking with independent journalist Kevin Gostola, managing editor of ShadowProof.com, and we're going to continue our conversation about the extradition hearings and things related to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we welcome Kevin Gostola, managing editor of Shadowproof.com. If you are interested in the Julian Assange case and all things WikiLeaks, Kevin Gostola has been one of the leading journalists on this case for years, but Gostola has been covering whistleblowers going all the way back to Chelsea Manning. And again, if you're interested in this kind of reporting, hard-pressed to find people doing a better job of it than Kevin Gostola and the Shadowproof team. Kevin Gostola, before the break, you were talking about Russiagate again. We were talking about, you know, in the last couple of years, there's no shortage of examples of Russia hacked this and Russia hacked that, which, by the way, doesn't mean that they're not involved in election meddling. But what we have seen on basis of much of the evidence is a lot of these claims have technically been debunked, even though the corporate media keep repeating them. The importance of Vault 7 is that it shows that there are tools that the CIA can use to mask this, and that's where we left off our conversation. And you clearly outlined, well, why is the CIA embarrassed and in the United States really interested in this extradition and trying to get Assange over here? Why don't we cut to the chase and get there? What does the United States government hope to do if they're able to extradite Assange and try him under the Espionage Act? Well, first, I have to say that there is a massive shift politically from Donald Trump to Joe Biden's administration when it comes to this case. And and it's one that I will not hesitate to call out because I think it is shameful. I have much more respect for the thugs in the Trump administration that would stand before us and tell us exactly why they wanted to bring Julian Assange to the United States and put his head on a pike. I am really appalled by the Biden administration and their appointees, specifically their spokespeople who will go out there and won't take questions from reporters when they are confronted with the hypocrisy of the United States that continues to say things about human rights and press freedom. We are recording this on a day where the State Department is calling awareness to crimes against journalists that go on with impunity, but will not take a single question from a reporter about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks on the basis that it's an ongoing case. It's the Justice Department's thing. Go ask the Justice Department. The Justice Department can deal with it. Well, the Justice Department isn't going to give you anything if you go to their public affairs department. So it's just dodge after dodge after dodge, which is a total 180 from the Trump administration that was proud to prosecute for the first time a publisher under the Espionage Act. Now you have a Biden administration that pretends like this isn't going on while they are in office. They act like they can't do anything to stop it. Meanwhile, they actively put one of the most venomous prosecutors in the Justice Department on the case, Gordon Cromberg in the Eastern District of Virginia, to be the point person who puts statements before these courts in the UK that cannot be cross-examined 
Julian Assange's legal team is not allowed to call him to the stand and question him about his claims that he makes about prison conditions in the U.S., and yet everything he says is treated as credible fact. So there's nobody who can be held accountable out in the open while this case is unfolding. And, and what they aim to achieve, I don't know, because they really won't defend it. They refuse to defend what they're doing. But I think what they aim to achieve, they've actually already achieved in some respects. So they've created an incredible chilling effect against people like Julian Assange, who would pursue these kinds of projects. And I say that recognizing that at the same time this is going on, the revolution that WikiLeaks sparked 10 years ago is now common. We talk about this year, the Facebook papers, the Pandora papers. We had the Panama papers last year, the year before that. Now it's like a model to put papers after something. Who started that? Who started the scientific journalism revolution? That was WikiLeaks that said it's better than just putting out a story for media organizations to also include the primary source materials so that when you are doing this work, not only do people get to see what you are revealing as described by, let's say, journalists with the expertise to deconstruct them and show people what's important, but then you also can bring in scholars and academics, human rights organizations can dig into them, and we can go beyond just the initial reporting to actually have a meaningful impact with these documents. Kevin Gostola, that's absolutely correct. It's interesting, however, to see how much has changed with the corporate media landscape. The Courage Foundation, Dan Ellsberg, Noam Chomsky, Alice Walker, others behind the Assange defense movement, actions all over the United States. I had Jeff Mackler on. He did a lot of things in the San Francisco Bay Area. We spoke there uh, in support of Assange. But a lot has changed from the Pentagon Papers when the New York Times picked up that case. And you and I have talked about this before. That landslide shift has made things like WikiLeaks absolutely necessary because the so-called Fourth Estate has been completely captured by corporations, government interests, and they rarely report on these key whistleblower cases. Now, I want to use this as a segue. You mentioned Facebook Papers, and that brings up Francis Haugen. Why is it interesting that someone like that gets embraced by the media and invited to Congress as a whistleblower, telling us things we already knew about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook for the most part, at the same time during Media Literacy Week when they are shooting the messenger in Julian Assange? Well, my reaction to Frances Hagen was I read her statement to Congress or to these congressional committees, and I didn't see many specifics. I'm not exactly sure what she's blowing the whistle on. And yet it seems like she's really just this operative that came out to do a public relations campaign against Facebook that has the backing of people in Silicon Valley who like her as a vehicle for self-regulation. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that they fear what could happen if they let the people decide how Facebook would be regulated. People are really upset with these social media companies and so they're trying their own operation in order to head things off at the pass and get the least worst possible outcome. I was upset also because Frances Haugen won. The way she blew the whistle, most whistleblowers don't actually have those kinds of resources. They're not able to go on 60 Minutes and then two days later go before a Senate committee I would love it if more whistleblowers had this ability. So I'm not really saying that someone who's a whistleblower shouldn't proceed with that kind of script. 
But isn't it interesting that some people have ready access to it while others don't? Let's not forget that this person had access anonymously to the Wall Street Journal for several segments before even appearing and outing herself on 60 Minutes, then to conveniently go to Congress a couple days later. And it's also telling, and I don't like pitting whistleblowers against whistleblowers, but I think a much more crucial and important whistleblower is Sophie Zhang, who's a Facebook whistleblower. Julia Carey Wong did this incredible report for The Guardian on her, showing the way in which basically Facebook would not deal with these troll farms or these suspicious accounts from these countries that we know the United States government is engaged in meddling in, like let's say Honduras, for example. And she brought it to their attention that this was activity that Facebook needed to use their systems to crack down on, and they just didn't care. They didn't care because it's not Russia, it's not China, it's not anything that important. Azerbaijan, for example, that was something that she said was keeping her up at night. She thinks that leaving these suspicious activity online is leading to human rights abuses, basically, that people are suffering because they're not dealing with this and just gets brushed aside and they don't listen to her and she's not allowed to basically do her job because she was in this department. And so when she came forward, collective shrug from media, now Francis Hogan, who's getting bankrolled by Pierre Omidyar, everyone's really engaged. And you've got an outfit, a pseudo whistleblower support firm out in DC that is backing her. And that's why she gets all this wall-to-wall coverage. When I'm trying to look for whistleblower stories, the only one I can find is Francis Hogan. And she's really eating up the attention. And it's like, there's no other whistleblower stories. And I can tell you there are other whistleblower stories to be told. It's just the media is only focused on this singular one. Which is what makes it even more suspicious. Why are they interested in this story? Well, it's a Trojan horse for other agendas regarding social media, Facebook, Silicon Valley. This is not at all a personal attack against the person, Francis Haugen, in any way. But what it is, is a calling out that why is it that some are embraced and why is Daniel Hale sitting in prison? Why is Assange still in the Belmarsh prison while they're trying to extradite him to the U.S. to face charges under the Espionage Act? Well, it's because some of that information is really damning against the establishment and other information is leading to other things the established order may actually want in terms of controlling social media or regulating some of these social media platforms. Kevin Gastola, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to call attention to two other things, actually. But one, where are we now in the Assange case? What are the next steps that you are anticipating? We talk about punishment by process, and that's really what is happening to Julian Assange. This is likely to continue for another two to four years, possibly, with the way things are unfolding in the UK. I'm not even getting to a potential trial. I mean, if he is extradited to the United States, we can extend that to it probably be six to eight years before it is all settled. That's something that really needs to be considered. We're waiting on a decision from the High Court of Justice. It may not be here until January. My, that's, again, some time, and all the more reason that we should be paying close attention to what's happening to Assange and what has been happening so we can understand this process against whistleblowers. And Kevin Gastola, you have understood that and covered this for some time, and I want to end on a note that actually kind of goes into the archives a moment, because history matters, and, and you have a stellar history of covering these important issues. 
And I want to remind people of the importance of whistleblowers like Mark Klein. Can you remind our listeners, why is Mark Klein an interesting source and why should he be a household name, the AT&T whistleblower from the Bush administration years? You're pulling from a retrospective I did on whistleblowers who challenge mass surveillance. I did this on the 20th anniversary of the Patriot Act. You know, my basic understanding of Mark Klein, though I wasn't actually around doing my work when he came forward first, but he is a warrantless wiretapping whistleblower. You know, he came forward. I'd pair him along with Thomas Tam from the Justice Department, who was the source for the Eric Leakedblau and James Risen article from the New York Times. Mark Klein comes forward and says, I came across a room that AT&T is operating where they're giving the NSA access to the network so that they can tap customers' communications. And this is before Snowden. So we need to think about right now how much of a bombshell revelation that was. I mean, it's, we're kind of desensitized now because of all of the revelations we've read from NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. But back then, that was huge. Well, Kevin Gostola, that was 15 years ago that Klein went to the Electronic Frontier Foundation in San Francisco to show this. And I bring that up as someone, not just as a journalist, but as an historian. History matters. Journalism matters. These struggles matter. And these things didn't just materialize last week in the extradition hearing uh, with Assange. So, Kevin Gostola, I want to thank you for all the courageous reporting you do and the important work that you do, really shining light in the dark places and trying to help us understand what's happening behind the scenes in these important whistleblower cases, in particular right now with WikiLeaks and Assange, the extradition case. Again, Kevin Gostola, managing editor at shadowproof.com. If you want to find out more about what's happening in the Assange case, there are a few sources I can recommend more highly. Kevin Gostola, thanks again for all you do. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us once again on the Project Censored show. Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome back Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our conversation about Julian Assange and much more after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This half hour on the program, we welcome back Eleanor Goldfield, creative radical, journalist, and filmmaker. Eleanor's work focuses on radical and censored issues via photo, video, and written journalism, as well as artistic mediums, including music, poetry, and visual art. She is the host of the podcast Act Out, co-host of the podcast Common Censored, certainly something we have in common, along with Lee Camp. <laughs> And co-host of the podcast, Silver Threads, along with Carla Bergman. Eleanor's award-winning documentary film, Hard Road of Hope, is about West Virginia as both resource colony and radical inspiration. And the last time we had Eleanor Goldfield on the show, I believe it was to talk about the film Hard Road of Hope. And that's probably going to come up again in our conversation today. You can certainly learn more about that at hardroadofhope.com. Eleanor Goldfield, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And I am grateful that you were able to take some time out of your very busy schedule, all of the things that you do, and wanted to talk about an issue that is, of course, very near and dear to the both of us, and that is press freedom. 
media freedom, the problems of censorship in media, and the importance of whistleblowers and people that leak vital information, risk, in fact, their careers and their lives in some cases to tell we the people things that we really need to know in order to hold those in government or high seats of power, private sector corporations, etc., hold them accountable. So, Eleanor Goldfield, I wanted to hear a little bit about your thoughts on what's been happening in the Julian Assange case, particularly since we're in the phase of the trial for the appeal where the United States is trying to forcibly extradite him to the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act, which, as I was just talking with Kevin Gostola about, it would be an unmitigated disaster, not just for Assange and his family and WikiLeaks, but for anyone that has the kind of conscience that really fueled WikiLeaks' work, really important functions, and, of course, the connection that that has to a free press. So, Eleanor Goldfield, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what's happening with the Assange case. The anger and disappointment that I feel about this could fill books. And, you know, people are thankfully speaking out and writing and creating a variety of content about specifically this issue. Of course, it's not at all the the corporate media who used all of the WikiLeaks information for their own purposes, but now just can't find their tongues or their fingers to write anything about this horrific attack on the concept of free press which you, you could definitely argue waved bye-bye to the U.S. long ago if we ever even had it. But just the simple fact that somebody is facing espionage who is not American is really fascinating to me. Kevin and I were trying to untangle that a little bit ago, just with the Australian citizen put in the Belmarsh prison in London in solitary confinement. The whole case is really a travesty of justice in so many ways. I say it's laughable only because, as a friend of mine says, there's so much to cry about, you got to laugh. It is absolutely laughable, not just the, the proceedings of the court itself and the fact that he's in Belmarsh, the highest security prison in London, for basically telling the truth. But what I found particularly absurd in these last proceedings is the U.S., their conviction that... Well, look, you know, if he comes to the U.S., we promise he'll be treated well. And then they even went on to say, look, we might even let him go. This comes on the heels of information that was even published by corporate outlets that said the CIA was totally trying to kidnap and kill Assange. And then they have the gall to stand in court and be like, look, I know that we were going to kidnap and kill him, but we might also just let him go. Like, yeah. Are you kidding me? This is pretty riveting. Michael Isikoff, Newsweek. Even now, the corporate media had to pay a little bit of attention to this show going on in London and revealed that, as you said, the CIA and others were mm -hmm. talking about killing Assange. The fact that he's going through any of the, 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 the proceedings that are happening in and of itself is punishment. Absolutely. And, it, it's, and it's purely punishment for taking the powers that be to task and letting the people know the things that our governments are doing in our name. And that's the other thing is that he doesn't play. He doesn't pick sides. He, he does everybody equally. You know, he leaks stuff about the U.S. and he leaks stuff about Australia and Russia. And like he doesn't care. It's really just about opening governments letting the people see what the government, which is supposedly acting on our behalf, is doing. And that is unacceptable to the empire. And that really just goes to show you, not only do we not have democracy, we never have, but you could also, of course, argue that there's never been a free press. 
because the concept of a free press is an adversarial press, a press that goes up against the powers that be and says, this is not okay, or I'm going to show the people what you're doing that you're trying to hide. And the U.S. has always combated that. So there's never really been a truly free and adversarial press in this country. There are glimmers of it. And certainly at Project Censored, we really highlight and showcase the independent journalists, the non-corporate journalists that march to the beat of their own drummer. And that's why they're able to tell those kind of stories is they share that kind of conscience that is embodied by WikiLeaks, Assange, and many others. But again, it's hard to forget things that people didn't know in the first place. So it's worth repeating some of these things because we have to remember that not everybody knows the same things that people who pay attention to all this stuff all the time may know. And even the people that pay attention to it all the time, like we do, there's many things that we don't know. The fact that places like the Washington Post, other places did this with Edward Snowden. They -hmm. took documents and information that these people leak to go on and win Pulitzer Prizes while out of the other side of their journalistic mouths, they were shooting the messenger. They don't want to deal with what's at the core of what people like Snowden or reality winner, Daniel Hale, (laughs) Thomas Drake, you could mention 10 more easily off the top of your head. And Eleanor Goldfield, I'm wondering, with the kind of work that you do and the many outlets you do, do you see a way in which we can convey these kind of messages to the general public and get them to understand the sincere gravity of what is actually happening through the Assange case. What's at stake? Part of this is all about connections, making connections, because nothing exists in a silo. Nobody lives a single-issue life, so there's no such thing as a single issue. And I think that for a lot of people, because of the realities of surviving, particularly now, the lived reality of people requires communication in a way that means something to their daily lives. And I think that with WikiLeaks, the power is, again, that because they've leaked so much information that touches upon every issue you could ever imagine from the Trans-Pacific Partnership vis-a-vis food sovereignty and, and forcing people to grow GMOs and things like that, to climate issues as well, not least of all, Back in 2009, when Assange attended the COP15 in Copenhagen, he released a draft of that agreement that basically showed that countries were doing nothing. The only thing that they were doing was shifting blame and the accountability to poorer nations, predominantly in the global south. WikiLeaks has touched literally upon every issue you could imagine. So in terms of communicating that to people, I think the important thing to do is draw these important connections because... I think a lot of times when people are talking about Assange, they're like, well, look, he's only a publisher or a journalist and he's, you know, it's it's free press at stake. And then somebody's like, well, I that sucks, but I'm also hungry and <laughs> I'm about to lose my home. And I'm like, OK, well, let's look at let's look at how this affects you and the information that WikiLeaks has made possible that affects people's daily lives, whether that be their ability to live in a place that has clean air or clean water or what have you, whether it's a climate issue, whether it's a wages issue that's attached to some super secretive corporate deal that involves dozens of nations from around the world. I think making those connections is really important in order to communicate it to people in a way that spurs people to action because it speaks to something that they're passionate about or that they have to be passionate about because they're so trampled under the foot of the system. It's such an important part of the reality and the challenges we face. 
there were many actions around the Assange hearings this past week or two across the U.S., the Courage Foundation, people like Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, Alice Walker, many others have organized a lot of events around Assange and the Assange case. So it is good to see that there is some real activism around that and that there had been some corporate coverage. But again, you were right. What you said earlier is that the corporate media doesn't seem to be terribly interested in this because of their own deep conflicts of interest. Yeah. Right. So why would the corporate media not be interested in what is basically <laughs> the story of the century so far? Like, if you really look at all the things that we've learned from WikiLeaks, that's not really hyperbolic, how many things we've learned because of this. Right. And I think, you know, the corporate media is just that. And if you if you think about the fact that the U.S., you could call it an oligarchy, uh, plutocracy, but it's a corporatocracy. We are ruled by powerful corporations that lord over our government. And you just have to follow the money, you know, like look at open secrets. You see the receipt that paid for the members of Congress that you quote unquote voted for. We in the United mm-hmm. States, we the people rarely ask to see the receipts unless it's something we're yeah. buying at the store. But we don't seem to translate that civically. Absolutely not. And I think a lot of that is really the power of the propaganda, which you know loops us back to corporate media. You know, no one at corporate media is talking about the fact that your vote is basically meaningless. If you look at the Princeton study from several years ago that showed that whatever you vote for has really no bearing on what legislation is passed or not passed. And so corporate media is not going to start their election coverage with Wolf Blitzer or whatever. They're not going to start it by saying, just FYI, this is all meaningless because the corporations have already decided decided what's going to happen. It's in their best interests and as part of the corporatocracy to keep this facade going. And that facade, that includes saying that we're a democracy. It includes saying that we're a free press. And both of those tenets of the American dream, the American lie, are things that Assange and Wikileaks have completely destroyed. And so corporate media can't comment on that because then they're basically saying, the whole foundation of the United States that we report on as this city upon a hill is actually just all a lie. The late, great George Carlin said they call it the American mm-hmm. dream because you've got to be asleep to believe it. We're speaking with journalist, creative radical, and filmmaker Eleanor Goldfield, and we will continue our conversation here on the Project Censored show after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On this segment of the program, we are honored to be in conversation with Eleanor Goldfield, radical journalist and filmmaker. Her reporting work has appeared on Free Speech TV, RT America, Mint Press News, Roar, Popular Resistance, Truth Dig, and more. Eleanor is also one of the 2020 recipients of the Women and Media Award presented by the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press. She is also currently a board member of the Media Freedom Foundation. So I actually have the pleasure of working with Eleanor at Project Censored. 
She does amazing work across the spectrum through the arts, through journalism, and more. Her recent award-winning film is Hard Road of Hope. You can learn more at hardroadofhope.com. And I think that's going to come up here in our final segment. Before the break, Eleanor, you and I were mentioning about the, the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, the role of the corporate media in propagandizing the public in context with why WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and really radical grassroots journalism matters is because in theory, we go back and we want to believe these things that we're told about what the United States is is supposed to be like. We really need these kinds of journalists and leakers and so on in order to try to even gradually portend towards some of those those dreams because the reality we actually face is quite harsh in a lot of ways. You know, we just had elections and it looks like the corporate Democrats didn't do so well. They still haven't received any of the memos that if they actually did half the things they campaigned on, they might win more. But they don't because the individual candidates don't control the direction of the party. And as you said before the break, the corporations are the ones pulling the strings. Just like they do in the corporate media, they also cast a big shadow over government. And you mentioned earlier, and I want to do this as a segue, you mentioned some of the important things that helped spur major movements that came out of revelations from WikiLeaks. You mentioned Occupy, and you mentioned the global environmental movement, and that's going on right now. There's a lot of noise happening around climate catastrophe and just now. In Europe, a lot of talk, not a lot of action, but a lot of talk that spins around. I was curious if you could connect some of the dots there with some of the things that we learned from Assange and WikiLeaks. You can't have democracy unless the people know about what's going on. That's a prerequisite. So yeah, WikiLeaks actually published this list. It's a list of 16 points. And of course, it's not exhaustive, but it's just a a, kind of like a little snapshot to show what WikiLeaks has done in terms of specifically climate change issues. And they also note that several of these, I'd say actually the majority, are aspects that Julian Assange is now facing extradition over. So one of those is government manipulation of countries into accepting climate strategies. For instance, in 2010, the EU commissioner for climate spoke with U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs regarding the climate talks that were going to happen in Mexico. And they both agreed that the U.S. and EU, quote, will need to neutralize, co-opt or marginalize unhelpful countries such as Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Cuba and Ecuador. Folks might notice that these are countries that have been critical of not only these countries in the EU and the U.S., but also they've been uh, critical of climate policies and the negotiations for both being undemocratic and insufficient. And this leak showed that they were literally talking about neutralizing these quote unquote unhelpful countries and doing that in ways that we see have already happened. Things like economic warfare, The sanctions on these countries that I've just listed are crippling, particularly in times of a global pandemic. That's one example. Spying and surveillance to gain advantages in climate discussions is another thing that WikiLeaks found out about. For instance, Japanese and German diplomats were being spied on by the U.S. NSA in 2008 ahead of the 2009 Copenhagen climate talks. The list includes things like the U.S. pressuring the IPCC chairman 
who agreed to help prevent Iranian climate scientist Dr. Mustafa Jafari from being elected as the co-chairman to a key working group at the IPCC. So the U.S.'s boogeyman obsession with Iran basically standing in the way of cooperation on climate change. The list goes on, but it's basically things that you may have heard mutterings about and the U.S. goes after Bolivia and it just happens to have a lot of lithium, which we need to build more Teslas so everyone can have a Tesla. And the WikiLeaks really brought this information to the fore years before we actually see that being actualized. And that is so vital and it's so powerful. And again, the action that has surrounded these leaks has allowed for everything from actual stops to things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I mentioned, to really powerful movements to defend forests or to stop pipelines or, or, or what have you. So you can draw those very clear connections between what WikiLeaks has exposed and the defense of water, air, and earth that we see happening today. Well, knowledge is certainly power, whether it's in the hands of government, corporations and leaders. But on the other end of the spectrum, what you just pointed out is that we, the people, when we have knowledge and information, we can transform it into a type of people power. But that's the key ingredient, people as a plural. While it's absolutely fabulous that people like yourself and many, many, many others that we're honored to work with at Project Censored are out and about every day in that fight. It requires millions and millions of other people to really push back. And you mentioned earlier the Princeton and Northwestern study from 2014 that declared that the United States at the federal level was pretty much dead as as far as a democracy. It was a plutocracy. It was a corporatocracy. All of the terms you said in the study was very clear. I still use the studies in my political economy class. You know, and and when the students get to that, they're just kind of flummoxed in many ways. Some of them, they kind of put it together and they're like, I suspected something was wrong. But then there's the other ones that are just like, this can't be right. And so a lot of the things that WikiLeaks tells us psychologically, they don't sit right for a reason, because many of us do have an innate moral kind of compass. And when we learn the things like the collateral murder video that Chelsea Manning helped expose in plain black and white, the murdering of innocent civilians, children, even journalists, mm-hmm. even Reuters couldn't wrap their head around doing much about that. These are extraordinary pieces of information that are psychologically distressing to people. So what are some prescriptions or ideas that you have to help other people who don't do this on the daily? Maybe what they do is they sit down and listen to your show every week or they listen to our show. Maybe they read some alternative news sources. What kind of things can you share with people about what is required to do this kind of journalism and to do this kind of work? You make a really good point. And I think as a philosophy nerd, this is one of the things that happened to me both in philosophy and like in real life. You dip into nihilism because you realize that if the U.S. is and always has been built on the blood and toil of slaves and indigenous peoples, and it just grew from there, there was never any accountability. There was never any reconciliation. And we've just gotten worse. And it's become the largest empire the world has ever seen. And all of the trappings that go along with that, that can really push people headlong into some heavy nihilism. 
And I think in my philosophical journey, what's really powerful is that, yes, there's no inherent meaning to life, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. It means that it's up to us to apply meaning to it. And that's really where that power of self and, you know, in a larger scale, of course, the power of communities and people comes in. Because yes, there is no way that this is just going to work out. There's no way that if we just sit back, that one day our elected officials are going to wake up. Let's talk about Riri quickly because of your film on West Virginia, Hard Road of Hope. Joe Manchin there really has proven to be the corporate democratic foil in an even already flawed and compromised package from the Biden administration. But I don't think you're a bit surprised about what you're seeing from Manchin based on the time that you spent in West Virginia. Not at all. And speaking, you know, specifically about West Virginia, people think that it's just some backwards place. But if we look at the $3.5 trillion so-called build back better bill that is now just this dead flopping gutted fish that, let's be honest, was only mediocre to begin with. In West Virginia alone, 68% of voters in West Virginia supported the original $3.5 trillion bill. And that includes 56% of Republicans. And this is not uncommon throughout what we consider to be the backward South. People were very fond of Bernie in West Virginia, for instance, but they just don't trust the Democrats. And I don't think anybody here <laughs> would good be reason. able to yeah. tell them that they should. And so I think it really just proves that whether you're in West Virginia or wherever you are, it's not from the system that you get hope. It is from these grassroots and people-powered movements to both fight and build. That's where we apply the meaning to our existence. That's where we apply the fight and the build for a better world and a better system. You're a creative radical, a journalist, a filmmaker, an artist, a musician. You're, you're uh, a fantastic storyteller, and you also platform other people's stories for them to tell the stories that the corporate media don't seem to have interest in and that people like Joe Manchin, they're not interested in. They're photo ops or sidebars at best mm -hmm. to buttress that power structure. But that film, The Hard Road of Hope, the story tells itself and you certainly facilitate it. But this kind of meaning, talk about meaning, you really harnessed a good deal of it in your film and what have you seen as far as some of the responses and reactions to it? What have you seen, ending on a higher note, what have you seen that's hopeful coming from the fruits of that labor? Thank you for saying that. I feel that it's very important to draw a distinction between exploitative storytelling, which is what our politicians and corporate media does, and community building storytelling, which really focuses on people telling their own stories, not you trying to tell a story that's not yours. And so I've gotten a lot of hope from this. It's been used as an organizing tool. Most recently, there was a screening where folks who were fighting pipelines and mountaintop removal came together to do a showing of the film and really worked on network building and sharing tactics and resources. There's also been interest from around the country and even the world. Germany has a really good greenwashing campaign, but in fact has some of the largest coal mines, lignite coal mines in the world, has asked to do a screening of the film as well. I'm incredibly proud that it can be used as an organizing and a historical tool because that's really what I want it to be. I don't think that storytelling should just be this kind of vapid, passive act. Storytelling is power. Telling our stories, that tells part of our resistance and our radical resolve to not only fight the systems of oppression, but to build something better. Indeed, Eleanor Goldfield and uh, websites that you can 
check out to see Eleanor's work, I'm going to mention hardroadofhope.com again about the film. Of course, artkillingapathy.com houses a lot of the other work that you do, the very creative work including recent music video, music recordings, etc. Your book, Paradigm Lost. Of course, you do the Common Censored podcast as well. Eleanor Goldfield, anything else? Well, I think that what you mentioned is is the bulk of it, Mickey. I would also like to, to say radindymedia.com. It's basically like a one-stop for radical independent media that is otherwise censored. It's a great portal to access media literacy as well. These are all voices from investigative journalists and really powerful, important outlets that are silenced otherwise. So please check that out, radindymedia.com. And we're always looking for more folks. If there's some outlet that you feel we've forgotten, please let us know. It's a great place. You can sign up for a newsletter and just get one daily email that shows you the latest news from, from a bunch of different outlets out there. I'm really glad that you mentioned it's radindymedia.com, R-A-D-I-N-D-I-E media.com. Eleanor Goldfield, thank you again for taking time to join us on the Project Censored show, and I'm sure that we will have you on again in the near future. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens, and the times for the master thief. Combine, conquer, steal, and masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach on potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we the problems in our